0: Before we get started in this episode, I would like to thank everybody who attended our vision dinner uh, in October. It was wonderful to see you all there. And thank you for the outpouring of generosity that we've seen since that evening. If you're interested in supporting RTS and you weren't able to make it, we'd love to receive your support if you enjoy programs like this podcast or the women's bible study or you've been sitting in on classes or just kind of hanging around and doing research on campus and you'd like to support the work of rts um, you can do that by going to www.give2rtsdc.com that's give the number two rtsdc.com thanks for your support
1: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. I'm here with my colleagues Peter Lee, Grace Sutanto, and Paul Jean. Sadly, uh, we are missing our beloved president. He is off doing presidential things, uh, inaugurating the uh, Jackson campus and board meetings and things of that nature. Uh, But we will greet him back uh, next week. Today, though, we are continuing our Tough Texts series. Tough Texts series. Uh, We still do not have a jingle, uh, but someday we will have a jingle, I'm sure. Once we finish the series, we'll have have our jingle. That's our jingle. I kind of like it. Okay. Today, our subject matter is, does the Bible endorse slavery? This um, is... A perennial uh, question, it's uh, often put that way uh, as a critique of Scripture that its moral compass is not as uh, straightforward as we might want to uh, think it is, and chief among its sins is the seeming endorsement, both in the Old and in the New, uh, testaments of uh, slavery. So we have a number of Old Testament laws that are intended to regulate slavery, and we also have uh, instruction for slaves in uh, the New Testament, which basically affirm that slaves should submit to their masters. This raises serious ethical dilemmas for us, ones that have massive pastoral implications. Uh, So we are, with some degree of fear and trembling, jumping into this topic Uh, today. Does anybody want to start us off to solve this problem?
2: Well, I don't know if I can solve any issues, but I did just want to begin with two thoughts. First, typically when someone raises this, um, there's background, like personal background and so forth. And so I think we, as with most issues actually, just need to recognize this isn't just a intellectual issue. You know, there's history here. And so, um, again, like I was just thinking about that point. We shouldn't think that this is simply uh, a question of curiosity or intellect, but this deeply affects uh, people. And so their past or just their, you might say, their passions will shape the way they think through this. So that's number one. I actually think one of the most helpful approaches is to Invite people who ask the question or who hold the position, the the Bible like endorses slavery, to ask them how they actually arrive at that, that understanding. You know, that question actually has been helpful because um, typically, at least what I've heard is uh, an individual will take one verse from like a particular section in the Bible and say see, the Bible endorses it, but just from a perspective of interpretation, We know you can't do that with any verse, right? And so I have found that asking people, how did you arrive at that conclusion, right, then causes them to rethink some of their presuppositions, and that leads to just the ability to dialogue about this. It it almost disarms them.
3: I think perhaps we can ask the question here, what are some of those passages that people refer to? I mean, Dr. Keen, you've referred to passages in both the Old and New Testaments, so maybe Dr. Lee, would you identify some of these passages that are perhaps under consideration? We're talking about the tough text. What specific tough text do we have in view here in the Old Testament?
4: Yeah, well, uh, and that's a good point. I think the uh, the sad reality is that the history of the church, especially in uh, the West, has used scripture to justify the continual uh, practice of the institution of slavery, and have um, I think safely. Uh, we can say, have uh, safely misused uh, certain texts of the Old Testament to do that. Now, the idea of using, you know, Old Testament law uh, as a justification for slavery is off target. And now, for the sake of clarity, yes, there it is true that there are Old Testament laws that does seem to endorse the idea of, um, of, of the practice of slavery, especially for the Israelites in, in the Old Testament. What I think we have to remember is that uh, these laws are regulated. They're restrictive. They're given in the context of, of depravity, of fallenness. They're not ideal law. This is not the way that it was meant to be. But given the fact that this is Israel's hardness of heart, given the fact that we live in, this, in a depraved community, the Bible at times will regulate laws to avoid abuse, uh, but not. And, but that regulation should not be read as endorsement another example of this would be for example divorce laws Mm -hmm. the Bible the Old Testament regulates divorce but that in no way justifies divorce it's not like saying it's okay I mean you know the Bible is very clear about divorce about the Lord hates divorce but and and in fact the Bible even says that these divorce laws are to regulate this because of the hardness of your heart Mm -hmm. it's not to be given as if this is the normative. The normative is no divorce, but given the hardness of your heart, here's now how you avoid the abuse of it. And in fact, a lot of divorce laws are actually there to protect the uh, uh, is to uh, protect uh, the the wife, the the divorced wife from abuse to leave her out, you know, without any resources and things of this nature. Uh, polygamy, another thing. Uh, There does seem to be some allowances you can make biblically that polygamy is okay biblically, that, um, you know, I think in Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king is not to have too many wives, (laughs) as if it's okay to have more than a few. Uh, No, the normative is monogamy, but given the hardness of our hearts and the hardness of the hearts of uh, God's people, uh, you don't, uh, it needs to be regulated. And I think sin, or or excuse me, uh, the, the slavery laws has to be seen in that context. So by giving regulations of slavery, it is no way endorsing slavery as an ideal institution. And so when we read the uh, regulations of slavery, the restrictions of slavery, like in uh, Exodus 21, in Leviticus 25, and a few other places here and there, it clearly is forbidding abuse. Uh, in fact, in certain cases, it actually even says that um, this is not the person is not to be a slave they are to be a hired worker um, they are to be cared for they are to be provided for um, um, you know you'd have to go through the the, the descriptions there biblically but uh, it definitely seems to suggest the idea um, that this is to be protect that they are to be protected and cared for the other thing I think to keep you remember is uh, we are talking about a typological setting of Israel uh, so, uh, what I find helpful is the Sabbath laws or Sabbath, or Sabbath in general. Um, every sab- sabbatical pattern, anyone who is enslaved is meant to be freed. The best example of that, of course, is the year of Jubilee, that every 50th year, the, the land is to be restored back to its previous ownership. Um, anyone who is enslaved is now to be freed. Now, Sabbath is a sign of the eschatological kingdom. Jubilee, of course, is perhaps the great you know, picture of that eternal kingdom. Um, if if the picture of the eternal kingdom is, uh, you know, freedom from uh, slavery, land restoration, then the picture that we have to have, the ideal picture of the eternal kingdom, is no slavery. And and that, I think, is the direction that we have to go. So we have to make the distinction between regulated law versus ideal law and to see the typological nature uh given that fallen state in light of the eschatological p- picture that we have in the year Jubilee Sabbath laws and things of that nature
1: I think that note of, on regulation is incredibly important because there's there's two things there's two ideas that underlie that one is and you know in the a, perhaps a more important one is what you said about divorce actually God hates this that you know it, it presumes that this is, not the way that it should be uh, and therefore we need to, you know, to, re- to rein in the sinfulness of human beings. Um, and the, the other thing it implies is that it's particularly some of these, these human institutions which have gotten embedded in society in a way that, it, that is incredibly difficult to detach or to, to, to abolish. That these human institutions are particularly subject to abuse, right? Um, And you know, uh, divorce is one of those, um, and and slavery is another. This is this is by definition a an institution that the sinfulness of man will find a way to uh, to 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 abuse and oppress and use for one's own one's own ends.
4: And it's important, I think, to stress again that the regulations is for the sake of the servant, is to protect the servant. Uh, even the divorce laws, again, is for the sake of the wife. Right. And in this case, the regulations is for the sanctity of the servant not to be abused. So any, you know, we talk about uh, slavery, especially here in the West, in the context of the uh, American institution of slavery in the 19th century, which was abusive, oppressive, very inhumane, um, that is not at all the picture. If we even talk about slavery in the Old Testament regulated, that is not at all the picture that we even have in any typological regulated form in, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and related
1: uh, to that, I think those, those case laws that you see in the Old Testament that are, regula- that are regulative, they're all application of the, the overarching command, right, to love, to love your neighbor as yourself, essentially. Like, love is the regulating principle um, which approaches the other person in uh, basic parity. Like, we are all children of God. Uh, and I think, I'm thinking particularly of um, Paul now with, in, in Philemon, how should uh, Philemon think about Onesimus? What is the basic constitutive way that Philemon should think about and conceptualize who Onesimus is? And Paul's answer is: one, because of your humanity, you're both children of God. Two, because you are in Christ, you are both firstborn sons. Right. You know, there's an equality, a parity that that underlies and and is more basic. Than any social structure that might speak to these two individuals, and I think that same idea—I mean, that's grounded in the command to love thy neighbor. And I
4: think also one last regard note regarding something Paul mentioned earlier that you can't take an isolated verse on its own, absolutize that as if that's a normative. Um, the uh, you know, in in our current day discussions about um, you know racism and uh, in a lot of the culture wars regarding uh, theological anthropology, you know, the, the, the text that we go to and appeal to time and time again and properly is the idea of humanity being made in the image of God. And that's an Old Testament idea. So you, we have to re- keep in mind that that strong overarching principle as we read, you know, these uh, uh, divorce, oh, excuse me, not divorce laws, but these uh, these uh, servant laws in the in the uh, uh, in the uh, in the Old Testament the trajectory here is to uh, establish a renewed image that means there is no Jew Gentile uh, and ultimately in the eternal kingdom there is no slaves you see and because of that dominant idea of being made all in the image of God
3: so how would you respond to someone who claims okay I get the difference between regulatory law and ideal law and I get that therefore, slavery was massively regulated for Old Testament Israel because of the ideas of the image of God and what God wants as the trajectory for the new heavens and the new earth, for instance, that there will be no slavery there, right? But the fact that um, Paul and the Old Testament doesn't just outright say free your slaves, doesn't just outright condemn it um, in a way that we would hear today, isn't that already itself a flaw in the scriptures?
2: When that argument is raised. It's a flaw in scripture. Mm-hmm. You see, even then, I have found it to be helpful to us, well, why or wh- what do you mean by that, right? And it assumes that, you see, I think it's a kind of anachronism to place our priorities today and think that within like redemptive history, that should have been the first priority. Like the declaration, we must end slavery See, like, there's a assumption there that, um, I don't know, it's just unfounded. You see, you're just, like, pitting, imposing, uh, like, what the church should have done at that particular period, even in terms of its pronouncement. So I just generally ask people, like, why is it a necessary, for, like, again, why? how did you come to that? How, how do you think people would respond to that?
3: You're asking me? Yeah
2: because you know the secular mind well. Because you're an apologist, not because well. you're secular. <laughs> raise that tea, please. <clears throat> yeah, I've heard that, but I, I just... It's just such... You know, I've heard that, but I just always like, well, why is it... Like, exp, like, how do you arrive at these conclusions? And that's why, you know, my first comment uh, was that people have a lot of, like, passion here. Yeah. But they're not really... Thinking through it, and like Tommy put it so well too, like uh, the Bible like makes accommod- like God makes accommodations, but those are not prescriptions because mm-hmm. you know God doesn't just come in. And even like um, again, yeah, I'm probably gonna say something that's inaccurate Old Testament wise, but even when God said to Israelites, "You shall have no other gods before me," it was in a context where Israel was in Egypt, surrounded by many gods, and it, we see this idea of God accommodating, meeting people where they are. So it's that mode where God comes in and suddenly explodes everything That is just foreign to the Bible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and you could look at that from like the Roman empire. I mean, does God hate the oppressive idolatrous ways of the Roman empire? We can read revelation and we see just condemnation of that. And yet does, is the church called to abolish the Roman empire? No. The church is called to faithfulness and to blessing of the neighbor and to counterculture, which I co- hope we get to First Peter 3 because I think there's a powerful, or First Peter 2, because I think there's a powerful argument for a counterculture in the midst of that kind of oppressive regime. So I think that, you know, to your point, Paul, the, 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 the fact that God hates it doesn't mean that the church's first mission is to abolish it, yeah. uh, at least not directly. Um, but then I, I think, secondly, the, I, the thing I would say to that is P- Paul especially, um, when you look at Ephesians 5, when you look at the, uh, Philemon, Paul sets a trajectory mm-hmm. for abolition. Like you can't—Paul Paul makes it—I think F.F. F. Bruce says Paul's ethic is such that, with, that if you're following the ethic, slavery cannot but wither and die because he's he posits that we are ultimately equal that before god anthropologically i'm on your turf now gray um, anthropologically we are essentially egalitarian we're essentially equal uh, ontologically in terms of salvation we are firstborn sons we have the highest possible status in the cosmos and therefore we should seek to treat each other Consistently with who we are, and so for Paul, if you can, um, uh, if you can find a way, a path to freedom, you should choose that. You should you should be upwardly mobile because you should be finding a a spot you, that is consistent with who with who you are. So I think we have that 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 trajectory in Scripture that. Um, and it's a similar trajectory that we would think of with idolatry and culture and empire and all of the and oppression and all of these evils, these social evils that the Christian is to encounter. That should we be in a position to better love our neighbor and to construct a society that encourages equality and the love of neighbor, we should take it.
2: Yeah. So a good example of that, I think, is um, Titus. Something. Go with Hebrew. Right, Someone no, actually, somewhere said First uh, Timothy six, where the language is very helpful. Paul says to those who are under the yoke of slavery, and it almost captures perfectly this idea that, hey, it's he knows slavery is not the like ideal. It's not something that was what God intended, and so there is subtle, I would say, winsome language that makes clear his position. And yet he also, for Paul, the priority was the advancement of the gospel. So he was not condoning slavery, but really encouraging slaves to conduct themselves in a way that uh, conveys, we are not even ultimately your slaves, but we are slaves of Christ. See, there's a nuance there that can, can be lost. Yeah. But yeah, F.F. Bruce pitted so well. He said, again, if you follow Paul's ethical trajectory, there's no way uh, a person can be okay with any institution of slavery.
1: Yeah, and you know, and on that point, um, that 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 idea that if you can free, if you can be free, be free, because this is more consistent with who you are. Likewise, we as Christians should be um, in- engaged in that. Should we have opportunities to set free, we should set free, and that's that's the basic ar- argument of Philemon.
3: So I think what this is communicating to our listeners is that so much of what we're discussing here involves really difficult um, tools and rules for hermeneutics and for interpretation, isn't it? So I think the demand is that unless you have a clear statement that is black and white in Scripture not to do something, therefore the Bible endorses that thing. It's demanding a very flat-footed sort of reading of the Bible or any sort of ancient text. And that's not how texts work. Right. right, right. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of people who say, well, Jesus never said, I am God, worship me in the Synoptic Gospels. Therefore, he never claimed that. Well, the Synoptic Gospels show us that in many ways, right? Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, Jesus has the authority to, to receive worship, and so on. And so, he does actually communicate that he is God. He doesn't actually say it, he shows it. And it's a similar way with regards to slavery in the Old and New Testaments. Um, you can show that by way of um, comparative literature compare what the Old Testament laws say, especially on matters like Jubilee and how to treat your quote-unquote slaves, right, as compared to other ancient Near Eastern communities or what Paul says, this trajectory that we've been talking about. There's no way that we can actually come away with a holistic reading of the Bible on its own terms and come away with saying that God therefore endorses slavery. So I think people actually need to be retrained in hermeneutics and, and how to read the scriptures well. And not just read the scriptures well, but how to read classical ancient texts well. And because of, I think, the demise of the humanities, the demise of hermeneutics and interpretation, and how to read these classical texts well, we we don't have the capacity for that anymore. We want clear black and white messaging. And because of that, we we lack nuance. And one of the things that Hugh Goddard says in his um, History of Christian Encounter with Islam, or Christian-Muslim relations, He says, one of the reasons why radical Islam has grown in the West is because of this lack of humanities training. Um, Who are the people who are being radicalized by Islam? He says, well, they're usually, he says, really educated engineers, technicians, computer workers, things like that. Um, And they're radicalized because they're reading certain passages in the Quran And then they say, oh, okay, so God endorses this immediately. And then they say, "Okay, I'm therefore I have to do X, Y, and Z, and be radicalized and follow ISIS or something like that." But he says that's not how the Quran works. There is context. There's the whole work. And so when God is communicating things like jihad, for instance, you can't take this to be a personal responsibility. So there's just all kinds of community rules that have been presupposed by the tradition of Islam about how to read the Quran. But they're now missing for the modern world. And so when people are just pulling out the Quran in their smartphones, they read it in a black-and-white, flat-footed way, and then therefore they apply it immediately to their own context without minding the gaps that exist. I think it's similar as well here with the objections. They say, well, unless the Bible communicates in hashtags, Hmm. then I can't follow it.
4: That's such a good point. I mean, how much are we sacrificing if we have that simplistic hermeneutic, like you were suggesting, you know, Trinity is gone, um, inerrancy is gone, um, you know, we, we are losing so much, and you can't help but to wonder what we are demanding of Scripture, perhaps, is maybe from a scriptural standpoint, they're being as clear as can yeah. be. We yeah. wanted clarity in a certain way, but th- to them, they're being clear.
1: The whole idea that Scripture endorses slavery, it, I think it, there is a shallowness to that reading, because it's approaching—it begins with the assumption that what the Bible is trying to do is give us a moral code. The Bible does, of course, give us a moral code, but that's not its primary purpose. The primary purpose is to testify to the work of God, which will end all oppression. And right. when we see that, that God is actually in the business of uh, exalting the lowly and uh, humbling the mighty, then the idea of, uh, that the Bible would support an oppressive institution is ludicrous
4: yeah and, and i think that's a great point that the message of scripture is a redemptive one it's not necessarily a a a a, a manifesto for the building of civilization yeah. by by shooting for the kingdom of god we have in essence are dealing with all things really each so each sort of the seek first the kingdom of god all these other things will come as well
1: i think this is this is in this respect i think first peter two is incredibly important Because on the one hand, it seems like Peter is just flat endorsing slavery. Servants, which is the ESV, but uh, it's do law slaves. Be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And this has been used so often to justify not only slavery, but that people should stay in oppressive situations no matter what and i don't think that it should be used that way because peter goes on i mean this is a classic uh found this is a household code where peter's telling us about where you are in society and what your role then is in society and that you should uphold that uh, but there's some ways in which it differs from like the greeks and the romans who philosophize in this way um, and the first is just right there at the at the front. He starts with slaves, and he addresses them personally. He addresses them directly. He doesn't go through their masters, which all other uh, household codes do. He addresses them personally. He starts with them, not with the emperor, not with the rulers, but with the servants. And then he gives them in 21 and following one of the—I mean, this is one of those greatest Christological hymns in the New Testament. It's up there with— Philippians 2, um, and sections of Revelation, where we have just Christ's finished work exalted uh, and portrayed to you as as the great example of how you should live. And it indicates how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. The kingdom of God doesn't work like Rome. It doesn't work like the world, where as you move up the hierarchy, you are of worthy of higher honor. That's not how the kingdom of God works. It's actually because of what our Savior did, because he came not to be served, but to serve, uh, our kingdom works the opposite. We are all to think of our, you know, Paul says we're all to think of ourselves as firstborn sons, and within that ethic, slavery cannot but wither and die. Peter says we should all think of ourselves as servants, that we should all think of ourselves as slaves to Christ. Um, And within that ethic, Slavery relative to humanity cannot but wither and die. So we've got these two poles in which I think the New Testament sets a trajectory of, of abolition. This cannot, this isn't sustainable. God hates oppression. God wants us to honor and love one another. And, uh, and within that, those, that, that value, that ethic, we should, uh, we shouldn't be passive Submitting uh, to you know whatever the world um, mm-hmm. might put on us, but we can actively in the local areas in which we're we're in which we're called to uh, bless. We can actively pursue the love of our neighbor and and, and encourage uh, ourselves and others to live in accordance with that.
4: Okay.
1: So yeah. we've, we've talked about this from a textual perspective and a historical perspective looking at Scripture, um, but we can also think about it theologically and pastorally. I'm thinking of, again, Ephesians 5, where, um, yes, um, slaves are to submit to their masters, so we have that same kind of line that's there in 1 Peter 3. And then, interestingly, masters do the same unto them, you know, setting this parity that there are duties of the masters to the slaves and it reminds me of the kind of confessional standards we have uh, in the larger catechism especially the duties of the superior to the inferior which are are not about slavery but they're uh, more of a general kind of comment on what we should do and how we should, if you're in a position of
4: power what should your uh, ethic basically be I actually did uh a uh, a reading of the larger catechism as part of a, um, uh, of a way of reminding our faith in the context of church uh, and just reflections on the law. Mm-hmm. And I was actually also reminded, Tommy, that there is a whole section of the larger catechism on uh, requirements of superiors to inferiors. The In fact, even the Old Testament regulations that, I, that, that we were referring to earlier presumes that perspective. Uh, this isn't given to... To uh, servants, in terms of what they need to do, this is a direction to, to the leadership on what they should not do, that is, be abusive and so mm-hmm. forth. So, uh, so there's definitely, I think, instruction there. Th- the presumption that, you know, image of God, that we are all in essence the same in being, does not throw out uh, leadership structures. Uh, we need pastors to pastor members, and members are called to submit to pastoral authority. We have, um, uh, even Paul tells us to submit to the civil magistrates in Romans 13. Uh, In the context of schools, uh, students are asked to submit to teachers, and and of course we as instructors are not to lord our authority over them in any abusive way. In fact, if anything, we are that much more to care for their well-being, and make sure not just that we communicate data but do what we can to make sure that they comprehend and, and uh, absorb that material in a way that is encouraging and if I constructive. Um, so uh, th- that, doesn't, that definitely t- seems to be a- an important thing that we have to keep in mind. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And, um, and the know. duties of the superior, I mean, the
1: superior h- is held more accountable. Right. Uh, you know, you, it's more important that the superior perform his or her duties uh, and we see that principle all throughout uh, Scripture, but the one that just came to mind is Jesus saying, "You know, cursed be any of you who would lead leads these little ones astray." So it, it is it is more sinful to y- abuse your power mm-hmm.
4: than to not to submit to a power. Mm-hmm. And the Israelite kings were the same way. In First Kings chapter nine, if the sin goes astray, thus go the people. Yeah because, uh, and there's sort of an implicit, you know, rep- federal uh, Adam uh, uh, idea there, that the king in many ways is representative of the people. If he worships idols, the people are gonna worship idols. So um, so it, it is the duty of the king for that reason to read Deuteronomy, to read the law, to stay committed to the Lord, um, because by effect, it will impact the
3: people that he rules over. That reminds me of something that Abraham Kuyper said and he said, you know, the kings of the Old Testament point us ultimately to Christ, our true king. And he argues if Christ is Lord, right, that means no human being is now Lord over another. So, you know, we've talked about this before in previous episodes about Neo-Calvinism, the idea that Christ has every square inch, right, every square inch belongs to Christ. He says every square inch belongs to him and so on. For Kuiper, that's actually a equalizing principle, that if Christ is Lord, that means we're not Lord over one another. And so he says that now that we have all of God's revelation and we're not any longer living in God's theocracy in the Israel uh, era, now there's a trajectory for what he calls pluralism and democracy, Um, that, that, that there are, in other words, political implications of what the kingdom of God is and there are political implications of the message of the gospel that if Christ reigns now, no human being can reign over another in that unjust way and so Christ is our king, and so we, we can work together in a more egalitarian sort of society and perspective. But he also argues that, yes, the scriptures have these political implications, so we, we have to care about justice, we have to care about abuse, we have to care about um, unjust inequalities. But he says, remember that scripture is going to call us to a reformational perspective, not a revolutionary perspective. And what's the difference between the two of them? A reformational perspective is um, a gradual sort of perspective. It's, it's It's a vision of change that desires reconciliation over destruction. A revolutionary perspective, and he has in view here the French Revolution, dethrones the unjust king and destroys him. But a reformational perspective wants the king to recognize his errors and be involved into this new order in society. And a reformational perspective, therefore, by definition, does not desire destruction but change that includes, it's truly inclusive. It includes the oppressor and the oppressed together, working in harmony together rather than utter destruction. Because, again, everybody is made in the image of God. And I wonder, today in a more godless society, in a more atheistic society, we have nothing left but a revolutionary perspective. Because if God doesn't exist, then it's all up to us. And, And good and evil is binary and the enemy is on the other side and sin is no longer within us or them see the thing is if you have god then you have sin and sin means everybody's involved in sin and the enemy is not out, just out there it's also within us and yeah. so we need that reformational perspective once again
1: i think that's such a great balance there that that Kuiper's communicating that you're per- communicating because on the one hand you could read passages like the passages that we've read and and just conclude oh you know, this is, I'm in an oppressive situation, I should just submit to it, you know, a a complete passivity. Um, And that has been, some pastors have encouraged that, and I think that that's wrong, that level of, of, you know, submission to where you are is not what Scripture is calling us to. On the other hand, you know, there can be this kind of, what you're describing as a revolution, and that's not, that doesn't seem to be on Paul's agenda. we Either we talked about that earlier. I don't think Paul has even conceived of the idea that he can overthrow the Roman Empire or end the system of oppression. It's not really in even Paul's deepest imagination. It's just this is just with us. Um, but what I can do is seek to bless those that are around me, and I, I what I can do is find ways to treat uh, the to to, to to treat the people that look to me and that owe me honor with even greater honor Mm -hmm. and that kind of perspective should be
3: reformational it's helpful note too what peter was saying is that you have to make a distinction between different kinds of order and i think nowadays we assume that all order means orders of injustice that all order means inequality in that unjust way but but it's not the case there's order of competence order of leadership that is proper to human societies and that's how we actually can pass down information from generation to generation for instance. Um, so I think the Christian is able to to be more nuanced about this and say well what kind of order are we talking about and when the order is unjust how do I consider the change that I can um, pursue in such a way where I can pursue reconciliation within that change as well and if it's not possible then maybe um, I can Uh, try to depart from that situation, but again, without that revolutionary perspective.
1: Thank you, brothers. I think this has been a challenging topic. We have not resolved every issue, either pastorally, theologically, or exegetically. There's still much to uh, discuss, but I do think the highlights that we've hit here, that the Bible sets a trajectory of equality, pluralism, that in the end, we're not passive on the one hand, nor revolutionary on the other. But seeking the good of neighbor and taking opportunities to do that while waiting for the ultimate justice of God because he hates oppression, he hates the abuse of power even more than we do. I think these are good uh, trajectory to think about and to resolve some of these tensions. So thank you for all of that. I hope this conversation has been helpful to you, our beloved listener. And please do send us questions. Uh, One of the best ways, if you like this podcast, one of the best ways that you can uh, support it is to like it and to uh, recommend it to others um, and to engage with us. We welcome your insights, your questions. Uh, You can find links for that on the show notes or at rts.edu slash Washington. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, take care.
0: by the way just to let everybody know we've got a couple of things going on uh at the end of november um, at, at the evangelical theological society and at the society of biblical literature both of which are taking place their annual conferences are taking place in san antonio texas and we're gonna have some rtsdc presence i know that i'm gonna be there i know that dr paul jean's gonna be there and i think three of you all uh peter tommy and gray are presenting at ets and they're going to be present and involved in some stuff going on at SBL, too. So, Peter, real quick, tell us, what are you doing over at ETS?
4: Yeah, thanks, Scott. I, I will be presenting a paper uh, on Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, uh, it's part of a, a larger writing project that I've been doing, and my presentation is just part of a chapter that uh, I'll be uh, presenting there at, at ETS. I'm also going to be part of the um, attending the Aramaic study group uh, in SBL, Uh, doing a real little special presentation there.
0: Tommy, tell me what you're up to.
1: Yeah, I'm doing um, two papers. One is on the Septuagint. Uh, It's a group, part of a book project that Greg Lanier and Will Ross are heading up on authority of the Septuagint in various periods of uh, the life of the church. And I'm doing the New Testament section. To what extent does the use of the Septuagint in the New Testament demonstrate uh, its authority, if uh, unique authority, if it does have any particular unique authority, and uh, and then a second one on which <laughs> the title is um, "Conceptual Metaphor Theory is True, but Is It Useful?" And my my thesis is something like,
0: "Yeah, meh,"
1: <laughs> 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 um, which I don't know how I don't know how that's spelled. <laughs> a <laughs> way, way, way to make
0: friends and influence people that's right <laughs> here's a field yes it's and no. it's true, but it's not useful
1: well I, <laughs> I, I I am arguing that it's it is it is useful uh-huh. in certain areas and it can be a helpful tool but um yeah but qual- qualified
0: great exciting and I also know gray, who's not here is going to be um responding i think to a session they're going to be talking about the translation that he Corey, um and James did on Christianity and science, uh, that translation of Herman Boving's important work, Christianity and science that just came out um, over Mm -hmm. the last couple of months. We've talked about it here on this, uh, in this forum as well. So if you're gonna be at ETS or you're gonna be at SBL, look us up, Uh, go ahead and look into your program booklet and you can see which which sessions we'll be uh, contributing to. And hopefully we'll, if not seeing you there, we'll see you in the book room. We also have another special event coming up November 9th. That's Thursday, November 9th. George Herring is going to be back in the States, and he's going to be presenting at RTS Washington as part of our Neo-Calvinist initiative. And he's going to be talking about what's going on in society and in culture today that has made this such a fruitful you know, conversation ground for neo-Calvinism. Why the revival of neo-Calvinism, both in academic work and also uh, in in terms of its validity for the church. So George Herring going to be on campus at RTS Washington, November 9th. Check out our events page. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Check out our events page to RSVP.